Welcome to episode 13 of Legally Cloud. Today, JB and I interview Gregory Bray and Ron Warman of Affinity. Onto the show. You don't need law school. Law school's for people who are boring and ugly and serious. Welcome to Legally Crowd with Mike and JB. Welcome to episode, I think it's 13 now, JB? Can you believe 13? It's lucky number 13. Yes, it is. And I think we're going to release this on a Friday. So this is going to be the best episode ever, I can tell. <laughs> so it's not Friday the 13th, but it will be the 13th episode released on a Friday. So that's close enough. The close enough. Right. You're exactly yes. right. And so, you know, this is the, the week after ILTA. And I'm curious. I know ILTA was in your hometown of Orlando. And I did see you there for a little bit. Uh, did you survive? I did. Um, you know, it was it was actually a lot of fun. Uh, I, I, I I was really dreading uh, ILTA being in Orlando in August because Orlando in August, I have to tell you, being down here for a couple of years now is typically not a uh, a fun time. There's usually a lot of humidity, a lot of heat, and I know people traveling in that aren't used to it uh, typically don't like it. But I, I do have to say that while it was hot, it's not as bad as it could have been. So. Hopefully everybody had a good time. Hopefully, you know, it seemed like the weather mostly cooperated. Uh, but I, you know, the the sessions themselves and and the conference, uh, I, I just thought it was it was fantastic this year. So definitely survived. Had a great time at Ilta, and uh, and I hope all of our our listeners did as well. Yeah, and you know, the one thing I took away was, man, they know how to do air conditioning down there. <laughs> yes, I. Uh, you know, it's funny with the advent of air conditioning. I think Florida's population rose from about three people. Uh, to to what it is today. So. I think so. And it was interesting. You know, you think, hey, I'm going to Orlando. I'm going to bring shorts. I'm going to be flip-flops. I can't believe how many people brought sweaters and actually used them because the because the AC was so powerful and the rooms were a little on the chilly side. Yeah, that's the the weird thing that we had to, uh, when we moved down here, that we had to adjust to, right, is it, it's hotter than heck outside. So your your body sort of, you know, your blood thins out. And then when you're inside and you go and you're watching a movie in a movie theater or something like that, you are freezing. So you're, yeah. you're bundled up almost like it's fall. Uh, but the, the seasons are opposite here, right? So it's... Uh, uh, coming from Chicago and used to the sort of brutal winters down there, usually in the wintertime, you're struggling to walk indoors in the in the wintertime to get out of the snow and out of the cold. Uh, here, it's the opposite. In the summer, you're trying to find some air-conditioned space to walk <laughs> through but, uh, so you don't have to, you know, fade in the heat. But Yes. Wow. Yeah. Well, that, that's great. Yeah, Ilta was great. Um, saw lots of, of people that I've known for years. So, yeah, it was a great conference and looking forward to Nashville next year. Yeah, I, you know, and, and Mike, you're a man of, of many hats uh, around our company, so I know you've you've worked in in various roles. Uh, what if you're always at ILTA? What is what do these look like for you these days? Because I, I know you know previously you were in professional services and, and and had some different roles. Today, I have to think that you know <laughs> quite a lot of the people and the vendors and everybody else that that's there. So, do you ever get any free time while you're there? That's uh, I've, no. I've always been curious about that. Yeah. No, especially this ILTA, and and one of the difficulties is you know they had part of the conference in the Dolphin, part of the conference in the Swan, 
and we had a demo room in each of those hotels. And so I was walking back and forth on a regular basis. I spent all of my time in in meetings. I had very little time, uh, very little downtime. Or in fact, I didn't even I didn't even make it over to Disney World until we had our our social on Wednesday evening. Um, yeah. So it was hotel to hotel the entire week. So no, wow. no, no yep. downtime. Yeah. It just, it just keeps getting busier and busier. So that, yep. that's built it for me. It's a whole, it's a big blur. Yeah. Well, it's good. It keeps us out of trouble. That's for sure. So. Uh, it, it sure does. Yes. So um, I know it's been a little bit since we've issued a podcast here, JB, but um, do you happen to have a list of upcoming events where those people around the world, if they wanted to, meet with members of our team where they might be able to find us? I do. So obviously we just uh, just finished ILTA in, in the latter half of August here. So we have some things coming up that I think are going to be quite interesting. So in September, September 19th, there's the Nordic Legal Tech Day, and that is in Stockholm. Uh, that is a city I've always actually wanted to go visit. I've, I've never been. But uh, yeah, that, that so that should be coming up. That uh, should be a lot of fun. Uh, September 29th through October 2nd, uh, there's the vis-a-vis -vis legal technology in Hatfield Heath in the UK. Um, so multi-day event there, so it'll be a little bit longer. Um, I always find that interesting because a lot of the events that are held in the UK typically are one day. So I, I like those longer events. It, it gives people a chance to uh, really sort of settle down and, and get acclimated there. Yes. Um, uh, October 6th through 8th, we are sponsoring our annual N, um, ND Elevate event. And this year we are moving, it's going to be in Salt Lake City. Uh, so instead of being in, in Lehigh or in, uh, in Park City like it was last year, we are going to be in Salt Lake uh, due to expected uh, increase in attendance. Then we have October 23rd through the 25th, uh, we have Fenelaw in Sao Paulo. Brazil, so that that'll be a, a good time. I, Mike, I'm assuming you're going to be at that one. Oh, absolutely! I'm going to be there. It's it's <laughs> it's going to be fun. That's excellent. Uh, and then finally, November 6th, we have a, another Elevate event, ND Elevate, but that is in UK in London. Uh, so that'll be in the uh, County Hall building in in London. Well, great, thank you. And just another plug for the Net Documents events. If you have not yet registered for Elevate in Salt Lake City, October 6th through the 8th, you can find registration at www-elevate, sorry, www.elevate-2019.com. And for our annual Elevate event in the UK on November 6th, you can register at elevate-2019.co.uk. Both events bring a lot of excitement, a lot of great information. You get to meet the NetDocuments executives and many members of the NetDocuments team. So both events are definitely ones to attend if if you can fit that into your schedule. Yep the uh, the Elevate events for me, you know, over the past few years have been absolutely wonderful. I, I love meeting. It's it's a much more intimate setting to meet not only our customers and our partners, um, it, you know, and it, it, it's just fantastic. It's like a smaller ILTA, if, if you will. Yeah, for me. No, I, that, I enjoy it. It's a little bit more intimate. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I would completely agree with that. So that's wonderful. Now, on, on today's episode, uh, JB and I had an opportunity 
to talk with Gregory Bray and Ron Warman at Affinity. Two really great guys. If you've never met them before, you absolutely need to meet them. They're very personable. They're very knowledgeable. Uh, just great all-around guys. And yeah, I, go ahead. They've been they've been doing this a long time as well. I I, I always find um, you know as as we deal and, and talk with different partners, it's interesting to see where they're at in their journey throughout through legal technology and. Uh, you know, Greg and Ron uh, are definitely some of the uh, more senior in in uh, in in their their approach to to this industry, and I, I I just enjoy talking with them any chance I get because you get a really mature lens on on our uh, on our on our field. So it's it, it was it was a great interview. Yeah, I, I agree. So sit back, relax, and right after the break, we'll uh, we'll interview Greg and Ron. Welcome all our, our podcast listeners, the three or four that have decided to subscribe. Thank you. And today, JB and I are privileged to have the opportunity to sit down with Greg Bray and Ron Warman from Affinity. And gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to be here. And so, you know, I know you've listened to every single podcast we've ever done because you're, you're just like that for us. But... What we like to do is, as we talk, before we hit you with the really hard, tough questions, we want to get to know you. So would you both mind starting off and kind of introducing yourself, who you are, tell us a little bit about Affinity, maybe a little bit about your individual background, either in legal or technology or both? I'll let Greg go first. Oh, well, thanks, Ron. Uh, uh, I'd love to go first. So uh, my name is Gregory Bray, and uh, as you could probably tell instantly, I am not from around these parts, as I get used to saying over here. Uh, I am via Australia to, uh, to the United States, um, and I have worked for 20 years in legal IT, and uh, I head up the document management team here at Affinity Consulting. And uh, we uh, have a team of close to 20 uh, consultants that uh, work on a varied, uh, many and varied systems, but uh, predominantly and most importantly, we work heavily on net document systems, implementing, supporting, and consulting on them. And I'm Ron Warman. Uh, if you can tell from my accent, I'm originally from northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, so not quite Australia, but also pretty unique. I also have been in legal technology for a little over 20 years, um, going back to my, my days at, in-house at a law firm back in Wilkes-Barre. Um, so I have a pretty broad range of uh, technology uh, experience from hardware, software, and in recent years, my specialty has become document management. And as Greg mentioned, uh, as, a, as a partner in the document management team in at Affinity, I've primarily focused on net documents as well. So are there other things that Affinity does outside of just document management? Uh, yeah, very much so. I mean, um, uh, you know, we uh, specialize in pretty much all legal IT software uh, we have either some opinion or can point you in the right direction or have gurus on staff. You know, uh, uh, Ron and I head up, as I said, that uh, illustrious document management team. Uh, but we also have a practice management time billing accounting team um, that uh, deals with uh, uh, products in that arena. We have a document automation team that uh, uh, basically does the document assembly work with uh, a myriad of different products. Uh, we have management consulting, default services. Uh, Ron, I'm sure I've missed a few there. Yeah, well, and part of the reason I let Greg go first is because Greg has been at Affinity from the very early days. While I've been here a little over a year, 
Um, but you know, part of what I see as unique about Affinity is the fact that we have a range of skills, you know, the soft skills, the cons end user consulting skills, the uh, lawyer consultants, all the way through those hardcore techies like myself that are really about getting into the nitty gritty and figuring out data mappings and digging into databases and that sort of thing. Oh, nice. So, so to me, it, it really sounds like you're just a big group of geeks that love technology and that's great. Love it. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Um, you know, we, uh, uh, as a team, the, the document management team, we, we meet every week. In fact, uh, Ron and I just had our team meeting, uh, uh, just before this call and, uh, we all plug in our videos and uh, um, and talk about the latest and greatest things that have gone in our life, and it's it's a it's a pretty geeky group. <laughs> I'm okay, That's awesome. Hey, Greg, I, I always like to follow this one up. What's a uh, what's a unique fact about you? And I'll ask you the same question, um, 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 Ron. So hopefully, uh, Greg, if, uh, just just a unique fact that a lot of people may not know. All right, so from Australia. I did give, I, you know, uh, I, I did get a heads up that this was going to be asked to me. So I, I looked at the ceiling and I've come up with one that um, I think only close family members know about this for me. So get ready for it. I don't actually cry when someone cuts onions in front of me. You can hold cut onions up to my eyes. Uh, I do not cry for some reason. Um, we thought that was a superpower at one point in time, my kids and I, and uh, they've done many tests on it. In fact, I feel like um, my place in life probably should be leading the charge in some sort of revolution where tear gas is being shot at me. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, Ron, that's going to come as a surprise to you, so I'm sure that'll, that'll leak out across the company now. <laughs> there you go. Nice. That's amazing. That's, that's a pretty neat, that's actually a good superpower. I like it. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ron, what about you? Well, I'm not going to share my alter ego or any superpowers, but I, I, the one thing that I think uh, people might find interesting is that uh, I, I take dance lessons. So after we had the second of our three kids, my wife and I were desperate to find something to get us out of the house on a regular basis. And so we signed up for Jitterbug or East Coast Swing dance lessons, and we went religiously for about two years. Then our third child came, and we took two years off, and now we've been back doing it again for about six months. But it's a really nice way to get out, socialize with some people, and uh, get some time uh, with my spouse. That's fantastic. So that's uh, that's actually a very excellent form of exercise as well. So no wonder you look uh, you look like you do. Um, so that's that's good. <laughs> well, I, I won't say that I'm good at dancing, but I do get the activity. So yeah, there you go. It, it's neat. all about the intent. That's important, right? That's that's right. The commitment. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Uh, so I, I'm I'm interested a little bit more to, to get to know each of you. So you know, each of you live in specific locations. When you when you go out to eat, what is your go-to order at your favorite restaurant? Oh, Ron, I'll let you go first. I need to think about mine. I'm going to come up with something more inventive. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, uh, with with three children, I don't know if it's as much about the go-to order as opposed to the go-to place. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a big breakfast person. I can pretty much eat breakfast anytime. And uh, when I you know think about where I like to go, and the, the one place I love to go is Chadwick's, which is a, a place that has a Sunday brunch here, because I can get the kids in. They run up to the counter, they pick what they want, they get their plates, they're eating immediately without any weight or crying or screaming, uh, and we get in and out pretty quickly. But you know, generally speaking, I can I can survive anywhere on breakfast. Oh, that's great. Uh, well, I'm just thinking about Ron went with breakfast, which I didn't actually think of, but now it's clarified in my mind that I, I'm an avo toast guy. 
uh, I can eat avocado toast anywhere and make it at home. But if I'm out somewhere at breakfast, I'm usually out once or twice a week having breakfast. These days, avocado toast is pretty much everywhere. everywhere. So that's my go-to. It's a, a, a pretty um, uh, a standard plate that we have back home in Melbourne, Australia, where I'm from, mm -hmm. except uh, back home, it costs around about 20 to $25 a plate. Uh, and here in St. Pete, Florida, I can happily uh, avo toast my heart out for about five or six dollars a serve. So um, that's my go. So you could eat like four times the amount and still spend the same <laughs> amount of money. That's great. I love Just, it. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely love it that much. And, you know, a little bit of uh, uh, cracked chili and some feta cheese on it, um, which is not normally the way you get it served over here. Uh, it, it It's a pretty good meal. That's great. I'm getting hungry I already. Well, I know uh, as we start to move towards a, a little bit more into the work section, um, you know, I, I, it's interesting. I know you guys have both been doing this around 20 years. Uh, you know, I think Mike and I have as well. As, as we sort of look back, you know, go backwards down the number line, if you will, uh, and, and take a look back. If you if you would, could pick or, or know something uh, that you could tell yourself now when you started your career, uh, you know, what do you wish you had, had known? Like, what, what would that one thing be? Oh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be one thing, but just curious what advice you would give your younger self. Uh, I, I might jump in first here, Ron, if I can. Um, I've got a, a highbrow and a lowbrow one. I just thought of um, the, the, the lowbrow would be that I wish I had to learn to type or paid attention in typing classes. Um, I thought we would all be dictating to our uh, computers by now, but um, unfortunately we're not. And, uh, my typing is somewhat handicapped at the moment because I have a broken finger due to a football injury from last week, a couple of weeks ago. So uh, I'm I'm uh, uh, one one handed right now, which is uh, uh, doesn't do well at all. And I'm only one fingered per hand, so uh, uh, very handicapped <laughs> in that area. Uh, but that would be my lowbrow version. My highbrow would be, um, you know, and this is obviously is going to date me, but uh, I started my IT career in uh, mainframe computing. Um, and, you know, we've gone that whole arc where we're almost back to the same concept that was in mainframe computing, where centralized uh, um, service that was distributed out to dumb terminals in those days, but uh, um, users out in remote locations uh, that really just had a monitor and a modem was more or less what they were working off. And uh, all the heavy lifting was done by a, a central location. And... Uh, and then we ran the whole gambit of going into distributed uh, um, uh, networks and client-server environments and clustering. And now we're sort of arcing back to the same concept. And uh, you know, it, uh, what's uh, what's old is new again. And uh, I think there's there's a lot of things that you know I can recall from back in my early days in Australia working for a Hitachi Corporation, um, and the way that uh, mainframe computing uh, um, uh, was deployed and how it was trained and accepted by users. It's sort of irrelevant again, and uh, um, I wish I had paid attention a little bit more to some of that. That uh, uh, those earlier days, it's a little foggy days uh, uh, when I recall it now. It's funny. Yeah. It's funny because in my early days, uh, it just so happened I you know, was working at a law firm, and in the office next to me there was an Australian, not Greg, who was trying to train dictation software, and he just all I kept hearing is scratch that, scratch that, scratch that. Uh, he could never get it to, to basically understand what he was saying. And so we ended up having to abandon that deployment. Um, but, you know, going back to, you know, some things that, you know, maybe I would have appreciated, you know, half, half jokingly, you know, the fact that, you know, my grades and my college courses in mathematics had absolutely no impact on my career. 
and the time I took stressing over them uh, was was almost meaningless. Um, you know, you know it was was part of it because we were joining the industry at a time where you know computers were brand new. You know, the first law firm I worked for, they still had a number of typewriters and you know some pretty basic computer technology, and we sent all of our email out through one single computer on a, on a modem and had to basically type them up and then hand them off to somebody to bring them to the central office to send them out. So it really was a time where you got in on the ground floor, you, you learned by playing and, and, and by trying, and if that meant that maybe a couple of computers caught on fire in the meantime, yeah, that, that, that was possible. So you know, it really was a time where you learned the most by just diving into the industry and, and, and learning at that point. Interesting. That, that's great. And, and funny, Greg, you bring up, you wish you would have typed, and, and Ron, you talked about dictation. You guys should do what just JB does. He dictates to me, and I type up his emails. So, you know, you could easily do that, right? <laughs> now, well, I, I did. I did take typing in high school, oh. and I was a pretty proficient typer, so it has benefited me. So, I, I will say, Greg, that learning those skills really have, have saved me quite a bit. Well, and and just to add to that, and perhaps this this um, this uh, uh, caps my uh, description about uh, how affinity has a as a place or, a, or an opinion about uh, almost everything in legal technology. We actually do have several consultants uh, here at our company that specialize in dictation software. And, um, you know, I think they used uh, Dragon and uh, a couple other devices. I think Philips had a product out there for a while. But uh, we still do keep up with that. And I do remember um, sitting down with one of those consultants many years ago and trying to go the dictation route and having that same scratch that, scratch that. Um, and they even tried putting in a Australian voice uh, recognition in there and uh, it still wasn't able to work. Uh, um, so I, I've been there and tried it. Um, it was just uh, incredibly frustrating, but I know it works, right? <laughs> I think it does. Yeah, we see it used in quite a few firms. Now we're, we're recording this episode right after the week immediately after ILTA. And I know that both of you were there. And so as we kind of dive more into the business type related questions, how was ILTA for you personally, for Affinity? And what are maybe one or two takeaways that you had from the conference? Good point. Uh, well, uh, Ron, uh, we, we had a debrief internally here on, on ILTA and what it meant for our company. And uh, um, and the takeaways from it, um, uh, Ron and I, you know, have some notes that we've we've shared with our team. Um, uh, I wonder, Ron, if you could uh, uh, point to a couple of uh, items that uh, you'd brought up that uh, you know we had a bit of a laugh about today. Well, I, I think the the starter when I think about ILTA this year, two, you know, a couple of things struck me. Um, you know, before we even get into those highlights, you know, the first thing that struck me was that artificial intelligence and cloud are just about everywhere now. You know, whereas in years past, you know, those were kind of, you know, somewhat new and um, kind of growing areas of interest and people were somewhat exploring them. Now it's it's just everywhere. And it's it's a given that you need to talk about it. You need to plan for it. It's more about people sharing their stories about how they implemented these technologies and what's gone well for them and what has not, as opposed to, you know, is there any chance that they're ever going to be something that you can implement? The second thing that struck me at ILTA was the whole impact of mergers and acquisitions and how it's driving the market. You know, a lot of folks that are coming to the booth are talking about, you know, products that, you know, either they've been acquired by another vendor in their end of life, or, you know, obviously they, they, these are legacy on-prem systems and they need to make that jump to the cloud, but that provider doesn't provide a cloud solution. And they're trying to figure out where to go. And so 
those two themes seem to keep coming back, you know, based between the sessions I attended and, um, you know, just the, the, the people that were coming to the booth talking to us about what was going on. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll also add that, uh, uh, JB and, and Mike, that, you know, Affinity had a booth there and conveniently we were actually located right next to the NetDocs booth too. So we, uh, <laughs> uh, we did get, uh, 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 some shared traffic through there. And I, I'll say that, um, one thing that I, I saw quite a bit of, uh, were, were people coming in, uh, into our booth and asking, um, a lot of questions about integrating very disparate systems together. Um, leveraging API uh, uh, between, uh, uh, you know, it could be an accounting system or a, or a contract management system and their document management source. Um, so uh, that was one thing I, I sort of uh, uh, saw that people trying to put the jigsaw together about all their, uh, with all their systems. Another point was uh, a lot of heavy questions and uh, sessions related to workflow. Um, you know, I sat in on the uh, electronic signature uh, session, for instance, which was, you know, uh, you know, pretty much, a, a, you know, was a demonstration of DocuSign and how it integrates with uh, document management systems. But we get had a massive uptick in in clients coming to Affinity to talk about how do they uh, uh, progress their contract management software with uh, signatures and and what have you and. Uh, we saw a lot of traffic in the booth about that, and that uh, even that that electronic signature session that I sat, uh, sat in, you know, there was a lot of people that were pretty perplexed, perplexed and didn't really understand the entire process. And I, I, I felt that um, it was really summed up by the uh, uh, one of the account executives at DocuSign saying that um, they come with electronic uh, signature software very late to the legal uh, 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 vertical. In fact, electronic signatures started out with real estate. And it was uh, uh, had progressed through a, a myriad of other verticals and only uh, came to legal as their last, uh, basically, uh, uh, outreach into uh, into that profession. So um, we had a lot of traffic at our booth asking about that. Also asking about contract management software, which is you know, stuff that we see quite a bit in corporate uh, legal type environments. But these were actually questions being fielded by uh, private uh, law firms too. Interesting. And, you know, some of those points that you just mentioned, Greg, are actually interrelated. When you talk mm -hmm. about, you know, I want to get electronic signatures and, and plug it in here, all of a sudden it goes back to talking about interoperability and APIs. And I'm curious, you know, as an added bonus for our listeners here, what what have you seen from the legal industry standard as vendors are moving perhaps more towards cloud, which we see as a trend, do you find that these cloud systems or in general software has become more open and has a better ability to exchange data with their disparate systems? Or is it all of a sudden become more proprietary or really no change? Yeah, I, I totally agree that it's become much more open. I mean, we have a, a, a team here at, a, at Affinity that actually that's their job. The uh, right integration, particularly between uh, uh, net documents and third-party products, um, we have found that um, most vendors are pretty open towards uh, 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 providing their API integration with the NetDocs RESTful API. Um, I think that a lot of vendors, you know, they see obviously the the, the path of document management becoming cloudified and uh, are eager to sign on to the uh, to that NetDocuments uh, environment. Um, but having said that, 
we do still encounter in law firms uh, uh, a lot of traditionalists that have the old-fashioned uh, 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 products. I'm not going to name any out there, but there's products that haven't evolved very much. They're still on the local file server. They still leverage very old database technology. And, you know, we are often challenged in how to integrate them and have to think laterally and, you know, do all sorts of things with macros and, uh, uh, um, you know, integrate with, uh, 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 you know, screen recording apps that uh, can click through and produce an export that would then uh, uh, be pulled into an API with net documents. So, there's a lot of lateral work that we have to do to, to, uh, to get some of those older products, but generally our experience has been uh, um, uh, really good. In fact, um, you know, the net documents app directory where we see the marketplace of partners that uh, are integrating with net documents with the uh, RESTful API uh, is growing uh, enormously. I just had a, a course to review it uh, earlier this week. And, uh, you know, it takes many, many pages to get through the list of uh, uh, applications that have their own APIs built in for net documents. Ron, what's your experience in that, uh, uh, in, with our team uh, uh, building those APIs? Well, I mean, the one thing I would say is that historically speaking, it was, it was the firms and organizations with the more sophisticated in-house IT departments that wanted to know about your API and what capabilities it had and how we can basically leverage that to do other tasks especially when they move to the cloud and they lose access to some of the, you know, the database and whatever else they might have behind the scenes. Uh, but interesting as we, you know, one of the things we'd like to talk about is how, you know, small to mid-sized firms are trying to compete with those larger firms. It, even then now it's becoming one of those questions of what is the capability of your API because my new e-billing system can now integrate uh, with, with you know, the document management as long as it has an API that can support it. So it's gone beyond just saying my in-house IT uh, is going to do something with this. It's now saying that I'm implementing other vendors that are going to rely on those APIs to build those those connections for me and, and create those links. And so it, it is really one of those things that drives us towards how you know the technology is making firms of all sizes be able to compete and leverage those same tools. So would it be fair, guys, to say that maybe um, you know in this sort of progression that we seem to be in, would you say that cloud is almost a technology equalizer, meaning it's it's sort of leveling the playing field and everybody's got an API, so it's it's helping sort of helping the community to to communicate and, and you know apps to to work within each other inside of an ecosystem. Uh, are you seeing that trend? Well I, what I would say the the one thought that came to mind after one of the sessions at ILTA was that anyone can anyone can buy bandwidth, right? I mean so mm. not everyone's going to have the team that can stand up servers and support the infrastructure and and you know create all those integration points internally, um, but everyone can basically make the investment in additional bandwidth to leverage those cloud solutions that will give them those tools. And so, you know, one of the one of the CTOs that spoke at ILTA was talking about the fact that, you know, don't expect that you're going to save money by moving to the cloud, because chances are you're just shifting your investment from, you know, on the staffing side, engineers that can support and maintain to those people that are helping optimize and uh, make more efficient the business processes and give your attorneys more tools. And you're no longer going to be buying servers and storage and things like that, but you're going to have to go and make sure every one of your offices has sufficient bandwidth and possibly uh, you know, multiple layers of redundancy in that bandwidth to give them the capabilities to connect whenever they need to. So, you know, it is it is definitely kind of leveling the playing field and, and making it easier for firms of all sizes to leverage the technology. And so I, I do think that's that cloud is driving that. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd add to that that, you know, 
even to further reinforce that leveling, leveling the playing uh, field is that inheritance of security. You know, with um, you know, I'll apply it to the net documents experience itself. When um, you know you're signing onto that service, you're basically inheriting the the security infrastructure of net documents, which um, you know, for a large firm, they might have the the resources to to uh, you know gain industry certifications with security related to their in-house uh, IT infrastructure, but um, for a solo that uh, let's say he's representing a, a, a client that um, you know works in the financial industry, he's got a lot of credential, a lot of certifications that he's going to have to uh, achieve in order to keep that client on board. So now all of a sudden he's in, able to inherit that type of uh, uh, security environment uh, uh, from net documents and uh, and able to uh, retain that client and in, indeed probably wow them with uh, uh, the level of security that he can leverage from his cloud service. Yeah, well, I, I'd say over the years, I've worked with a lot of small to mid-sized firms who had said, I'm willing to make the investment. I need to be able to compete with the larger firms and tell me what, I, what it's going to take. And so they were investing a whole lot of infrastructure. And now you can go back to those same firms and say, your life has become a whole lot easier if you're willing to adopt the cloud. And probably not only that, but it's giving you more benefit than you could possibly build, as Greg was highlighting there, is that they can't possibly match the same level of security uh, that net, uh, net documents can. So they're getting even more out of it by investing in, in a cloud solution. Interesting. Um, you know, that that's actually, so if we if we look at that and, and talk a little bit about security, there's the whole debate of security versus usability, right? So if it's not secure, usability doesn't matter. If it's not usable, then security doesn't matter. Um, where, where, how do you guys approach that particular argument and, and where do you see that, that space going? Well, I can tell you that whenever I start a project and like I, said, I primarily work in that document, so it's oftentimes, you know, designing the platform or coming in and looking at the platform is I always talk about making the system close enabled. And so, you know, you talk about open versus closed by default security and whether or not every matter, every workspace needs to be secured down to a matter team or a practice group, whatever it might be. But we always start with saying, let's lay the framework so that you can implement security where you need to without creating complications later. You know, some firms will just come in and say, I'm not worried about it. Everyone needs access to everything. Just open it up. And when you don't plan accordingly, then you know, when you get down the road and that particular client comes back and says, I need my matters locked down, how do you do it? And they're not ready for it. So we always try to go in and educate our customers on what it means to be close enabled to basically put them in a position to easily implement that tighter security if they need to on select matters, select clients, or whatever that might be, and, and lay the framework for it. Like you said, there is a question of, do you go too far? And you've locked down things so much that people cannot collaborate. They can't work and review content that they were trying to work on. And you're putting so much on the end users to kind of work around the system that it's no longer efficient for them. Yeah, the, um, the interesting thing that we have at Affinity is we have such a varied uh, client list. You know, we have uh, solos all the way up to uh, um, you know, Fortune 200 type firms. And uh, um, uh, you can imagine that uh, the security requirements you know, uh, uh, can be very different. Um, but even the the uh, less sophisticated firms, you know, we try to educate them on the requirements of security. And, you know, maybe they don't have any ethical rule requirements uh, uh, for the, you know, two or three user law firm, but we'll we'll try and drill it into them about, uh, well, perhaps you've got uh, uh, administrative or personal documents you need secured and, uh, you know, demonstrate the power of perhaps a, a search for a keyword like um, resumes um, and 
you know, see if they, they find things that shouldn't be just findable, you know, and, uh, uh, and use that as an education to them that you need to layer in security, maybe not in your, your client cabinets or client documents, perhaps consider the administrative areas of your firm, the payroll documents, um, uh, the employment contracts, um, and educate them a bit on that end uh, so that they understand, uh, uh, you know, that it's worth uh, paying a little bit more attention at the beginning of a, a deployment of software, document management software, to, to sort of build or layer security in. Yeah, and I'll share a story that I was working with a particular firm where, you know, email filing is oftentimes something that's, you know, you question, you know, how do I push my users to file emails and file the appropriate emails, but maybe not overfile and inundate the system with all their email. And we had a particular client where, you know, some, somebody was filing emails and, you know, the assistant was filing it for the attorney and e an email got filed and unintentionally got exposed because they filed it to a public location. That email net was now available and then someone else, you know, that, another associate that shouldn't have seen that email now saw it, which the partner didn't realize because they didn't file it themselves. And all of a sudden now they, they see something they shouldn't have. Well, then the reaction or overreaction at that point was we want every email private by default, you know, and it's basically locked down. And now so you, you go from one extreme of trying to encourage collaboration to, I want them to file their email, but I want it all limited to just that individual user or the couple of users that were on it. And at some point you kind of go to the other extreme and potentially make it harder to collaborate with each other than, than it was before. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a challenge. I, I remember a long time ago working for a firm where they had actually physically um, well, not physically, but removed the reply all button from Outlook because of a few uh, snafus. Apparently, the reply all was a bit tricky to get back in the day. Um, but yeah, that's that's uh, that's definitely you know a, 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 you know an interesting space there. The the one that I'm continuing to see, and I don't know if you guys are, are seeing this trend, is um, you know due to client audits and some other things, there is a, a changing of the guard, if you will, where things are starting to get locked down uh, more and more and more and more tightly. Um, but that seems to fly at odds in, in the face with firms that want to have a, a good knowledge management initiative. So, you know, mm -hmm. KM and security seem to be diametrically opposed. Um, so I don't know if you see that at all. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, you're, you're trying to rely on old work product for, you know, examples and references to use going forward. But when you have to try to lock that down to meet those those audits that you're talking about, then all of a sudden that content becomes unavailable. And so now you basically have to go to the effort of potentially having some sort of cleansing process, you know, having someone assigned to review, cleanse out the you know, client specific information, and then, you know, turn those into templates. And, you know, not a lot of firms have those types of resources to invest. So you're going from the point where I can always just search for old work product, find a good example, use that as my starting point and go forward with it to now all of a sudden, do I have to have dedicated resources to prepare and, and extract the information I need and, and make that available as a separate library of some sort? Yeah, exactly. Perfect. And so it's, it's, you know, you talk a lot about educating the client and educating on security and an open versus perhaps a closed environment. But, you know, document management isn't all that you do. You do other types of legal technology. And so, you know, that never ending list of technology, whether it's something that's integrated with net documents or something that perhaps is a standalone, right? There's, there's lots of different technologies that can help lawyers, it can help assistants, it can help different people with inside of a law firm. 
as you look at this different technology, how do you evaluate and recommend specific solutions to your clients? Yeah, well, what I would say is even before you look outside of document management, you know, now systems have become so robust and uh, delivering of so many different features and options, whether it's natively uh, through their own subscriptions or third-party integrations, even within the document management platform, I think we find that we need to somewhat designate subject matter experts on certain areas to basically go out there and say, you know, what are the tools for doing document comparison and redlining? You know, what are those e-signature tools, as Greg was uh, kind of mentioning before, or, you know, OCR capabilities, or whatever that might be. It's almost to the point where even within the document management platform, we have to have you know, certain experts to kind of spearhead those efforts. Um, but at Affinity, as we, we kind of described, we do also have uh, lawyer consultants that specialize in product selection engagements. So beyond the, the traditional methods of, well, I'm going to check the ILTA survey and see what everyone else is using, or I'm going to ask all my friends in the legal community, you know, what tools they're using and kind of make my decision based off of that. We also have those lawyer consultant, consultants that do the product selection engagements, working with the end users, seeing how they're working today, what their workflows are, how they're using their tools, and might, what might be some of the options to go forward, and then assisting them with the, the demo and selection process, usually having some sort of grading system and you know, selecting feedback to help them make a, an educated decision there. So personally speaking, I obviously focus a lot on document management, um, but we rely on people within our team or even those other consultants to help us identify what are worthwhile products to look at, and then they come back and educate the team as a whole, as Greg mentioned, on things like our team meetings. Yeah, the um, those uh, um, uh, software selection uh, um, uh, engagements we do, or even taking a step back, we do um, a considerable amount of tech assessment, just technology assessment, what's working, what's not, what can be replaced, uh, um, what can be refined. Uh, we do quite a few of those engagements as well. And, and I can tell you that both that and the software selection, we, we really work with the firm in terms of what their culture is. Um, you know, what are they capable of, of adopting? What fits with their, their environment? Uh, um, you know, and, and there's obviously the consideration of the budget. What are they looking at in terms of their IT budget? Uh, over the next, you know, 12 months, five years, uh, and what selections fit with that. You've also got to look at their infrastructure. Um, you know, what are they, from a technology standpoint, what uh, uh, what are they standing up that has to uh, support the environment? So, you know, if they're a Mac shop or do they bring tablets uh, uh, to the office? Um, and, and we sort of work with them on, on what they're using from that end. And then lastly, you know, you've got to look at the integration and it can be, uh, you know, everything from, you know, we were talking about the cloud to cloud, cloud API integration before, but it could be looking back down at, you know, their, their local scanning software uh, or scanning systems. And, you know, how can that be improved and integrated with their document management or their contract management software? Um, so, you know, the, the, we're, we're taking a pretty big look across a firm and then, basically providing that uh, a narrowed selection uh, uh, criteria based on what we see from those uh, those various facets there. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that that part of those uh, assessments, um, our consultants will actually generate surveys for the stakeholders or for the user base that's being uh, um, looked at for them to even give their input on what they know. So we, we take many things into account when we do that type of selection. That sounds yeah, like I had a, sorry, sorry, I was going to say, I just had to laugh because it made me think about our the, the, the person that oversees our practice management group and how she'll say, I know you guys are going to go out to these conferences and you're going to come back and there's going to be all these practice management vendors that want us to look at their products. 
you know, slow it down because I can only look at so many. And so it's just, you know, for, for some of us, you know, you know, we're, we're fortunate to kind of focus on a couple of them. And for others, they are looking at so many different products and trying to compare and contrast and maintain those matrix of, of the differences between them. So it's, it's a much more complicated job. Right. And, you know, kind of along those same lines. So along with recommending software, you know, some software is more complex, more involved in, in than, than other software. And in the end, you, you almost, I suspect, form relationships with companies based upon certain criteria, et cetera. And sometimes, you know, we as companies get those relationships right. Sometimes we don't quite get those relationships right and find out somewhere down the road, well, we made the wrong decision. We have to backtrack and, and go in that regard. But as as you start looking at not only software, but perhaps the companies behind them and and who you might partner with, what are some things that you look at and, and are there some lessons learned that you might be able to share? Yeah, so, um, I mean, this is a public broadcast, so we don't want to name too many names, right? But uh, um, there are, um, you know, there, there are vendors that, that, you know, historically have, have you know, we've had long relationships with that, um, that some of their products have, have gone a little in a different direction than we would have uh, uh, thought, and uh, and we've seen some of that being driven by perhaps uh, people losing, you know, uh, them losing some of the skill sets from their workforce, going off to work for with other vendors. So I think that when we when we basically put together any relationship with a, a partner, be it strategic or uh, from a consulting standpoint, uh, we look behind the scenes to see who is this company. Um, uh, you know, uh, what is their background? What is their strategy? And we want to get to know uh, um, uh, the key players in that corporation. Um, so, you know, obviously, you know, we, we have an amazing uh, 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 relationship with NetDocuments. We, we know you, uh, the, the NetDocs folks, really, really well and uh, very comfortable with them. And we have many other partners. You go to the Affinity website, you'll see that uh, we have very strong relationships right across the, uh, the industry. But we're always got our eye out for the latest moves, iterations in the marketplace. Um, you know, there's a lot of mergers and acquisitions going on in, in the uh, legal software industry, and, uh, and we have to do what's right for our, uh, our client base. Um, you know, Affinity, I think we're currently representing close to 4,000 different firms in uh, the various software uh, uh, and consulting requirements. So, you know, we're sort of at the ear to the ground in the industry for those firms. We, we send out newsletters and uh, emails to, to keep our clients appeased of developments in that area. But it's a, it's a tricky path. Um, uh, it really is, and it's so dynamic in its nature. Well, unlike Greg, I'm going to I'm going to name at least one name. Uh, you know, 15, 15 or so years ago, as I had mentioned, I was in house for a period of time uh, as well as you know, being consulting. And so when I was in house working at a law firm, I had a sales rep, Maggie O'Kane at Software House International, and she struck me as so much different than a lot of our other salespeople we dealt with because she wasn't just calling me to try to push as much product as possible. She would selectively reach out when she had a particular opportunity that she thought might align with our needs. You know, she kind of knew what our trends were and, and, and you know, what we kind of ordered on a regular basis and would say, hey, now might be a, night, a good time to jump in and order this because there's a deal or a promotion going on. And it was always that idea of someone that was more so partnering with you for a better experience than just selling you, you know, not just someone that's going to sell you, you know, vaporware or whatever's going to kind of, you know, help them hit their number. It was about the opportunity to make, you know, something better for, for the customer. And so when I shifted into a consulting realm, you know, I always kind of had that perspective in mind. 
And then also, you know, being on the fact that, you know, more on the technical side and have to deliver, there would be a lot of times where you'd rein in a salesperson and say, hey, watch what you promise. We want to make sure they understand the solution, what it can do and what it can't do, because if you overpromise something, you know, you're, you're moving on to the next opportunity and our team is stuck here trying to deliver that. So you know, I think it gave me an appreciation for the fact that when you're working with somebody, you want to see it more as a partnership uh, on both sides as opposed to, you know, just that, you know, that sales opportunity and being able to deliver something that's a good solution. Interesting. That's uh, I think that's some wise words of wisdom and and uh, you know fairly sound business approach to that because it's it's more than just right. What does this software benefit me? But it's it's more who is the vendor? What is their culture? What is their attitude towards the market? So I really like that. Well, a lot of times we'll tell people that you know there there are doc, there are systems that can be implemented correctly and incorrectly. And so the very same system may not work for one firm that works for another, all based on, on that partner that you're working with and that relationship you have and you know, kind of how, how that deployment went. And so it's not always about how good the product is in terms of the success of it. You also need to have a good partner and, and a good company behind, behind the solution. Yeah, I, um, a lot of times we get called in to to, to consult with firms that perhaps they've got an existing system in place that they just want to want to uh, replace it. And, you know, we might have some some uh, uh, some products that we would recommend uh, that would be a good replacement. But I think the, one of the, the underlying things that we do at Affinity is is we have this mantra that whatever is right for the client is right for Affinity. And it will always come back to reward us. So in those situations where we could come in and say, look, you need to replace X software with Y software and we'll show you how and we'll sell it to you. Um, we are, are always of that understanding that we should take a step back and see what if X software is just not deployed properly? What if X software just needs to, uh, uh, to be updated or reinvigorated or reintroduced across the client base? Um, the, 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 that firm will, you know, in turn, they'll, obviously save a lot of money, but they'll leverage the existing software they've got without necessarily going off to a brand new uh, uh, system and managing a, a change across the entire firm. And uh, almost every time that happens and we end up sort of giving them the right solution rather than what would be right for, our, for, for us or our bottom line, it comes back to us in, in dividends. That client ends up being a, a, a trusted partner with us. Um, and, and that's something that we sort of instill right across the consultant base here at Affinity is it's uh, uh, do what's right for the client at all times. Yeah, I'd say, uh, Greg, that's that's great words of wisdom there. I remember um, in my consulting days, it took me a long time to learn to actually, you know, listen to what they're they're asking, right? So they're going to ask yeah. you a question, uh, and what they're asking you is not really necessarily. Uh, what the problem is and and so you've got to peel back that layer and, and try to understand what exactly really is at the heart of their question I think that's a sign of a really good really good partner and 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 uh, relationship with their customer for sure that's, uh, that's excellent yeah exactly and so you know as you mentioned this is a public podcast we have people that listen to this and so as my final question if someone listening is interested in getting in contact with you, Greg, or you, Ron, or Affinity in general, how might they go about doing that? Uh, well, I think that if they want to get a hold of me, they can email um, rwarman at affinity.com. <laughs> oh, I, I was half tempted to give your home address and phone number, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I don't mind taking the odd, uh, the odd email, but um, uh, yeah, for me, just gbray at affinityconsulting.com. 
um, uh, and you know we have a uh, a really neat uh, uh, company. I think that uh, you know we have many many people that can answer many questions. So um, you know even if your question might not be specifically related to document management or cloud software or uh, anything that's in, in Ron or I's wheelhouse. As I said we have uh, over 50 consultants that uh, specialize in all areas and we can certainly get you to the, uh, the right person or at least have them tell us the right answer so we sound somewhat intelligent in our reply. Uh, so that's me, gbray at affinityconsulting.com and Ron, how would you like them to contact you? Yeah, well, you've already given my email, so it's rwarman, W-A-R-M-A-N, at affinityconsulting.com. So feel free to reach out via email. As Greg mentioned, we can get you in touch with the right people if, if we are not that. Great. Well, thank you both for your time. It's been it's been a great time. I think both uh, JB and I have enjoyed the conversation. So thanks again for, uh, for stopping by, and uh, we look forward to the next time. We appreciate thanks. the opportunity. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Welcome back. After that great interview with, with Greg and Ron, uh, as you can tell, we had a lot of fun, very knowledgeable guys. And so, JB, it's that time as we wrap up our podcast that we kind of pepper each other with, uh, with a question or two. And I've actually got a question for you uh, quickly. So if you could start a secret com conspiracy, what would it be? <laughs> uh, oh, wow. Or maybe um, in your case, what was it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, let's see. That that is a really good question, Mike. Let's see. I, I a secret conspiracy. Um. Yeah, I'm trying to stay steer clear of all the political ones that might be, get me in a little bit of a, a little bit of heat. Um. We were just in in uh, Disney World for Ilta. So, okay. Uh. uh let's say that maybe. Just maybe Disney World controls the mosquito population in Florida. I would believe uh, it. Because if, you know, Florida being the state that it is, there's mosquitoes everywhere. However, if you notice and you go around and you're looking at all of the Disney parks and the Disney hotel properties, which are just absolutely massive, they, they own a ton of land and a ton of area. I have yet in, you know, 20 plus years of, of traveling back and forth to Disney, I have yet to see a mosquito anywhere on property. So that to me is a little bit interesting. I'd, I'd be curious how they, they, uh, they, they deal with that. But so my, my conspiracy theory is that they have uh, uh, secret devices somewhere that, uh, that, that keep the mosquitoes away. Or are the mosquitoes small little nanobot machines created by <laughs> Disney? How's that? <laughs> I like that better, Mike. That, that, one, that one definitely goes right up there a little bit. Yeah, okay. Yes, that definitely. Uh, I'm going to need my tinfoil hat now. There we go. Yep. Uh, that's a good one. All right. So um, I will I will shoot back a little bit and, and say, Mike, if you had um, – this is a little bit more of a riddle. Um, and, and actually, I, I, I will ask, if you had three things – that you were going to be stuck with on an island, what three things would you bring and why? Okay. First one, and those who know me were not surprised by this, an endless supply of Diet Coke. Right? <laughs> that's top, that's yeah. top of my list. Yeah, there you go. Um, 
let's see. I guess a boat isn't a valid thing I could bring. Uh, no, well done. Yes, I was actually going to see whether or not you could. Yep, good. <laughs> okay, so no boat. So no no way to get off the island. Let's put it. Oh, no, you absolutely can yeah. bring a boat. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I'd take a boat so I could get off the island. I think the other thing that I might bring would be a map. There you go. Right? Well, so, I, so I can well navigate and, and figure out where in the world I am and where I'm going. That's what I do. I, I, I'm enjoying that Diet Coke was number one, though. That That's actually quite <laughs> apropos. Well, like I said, those who know me, they're not surprised <laughs> at all. Yep. <laughs> well, great. <clears throat> well, to finish up this uh, this episode, I've got just a, a nice little interesting story that I found. And, you know, it goes all the way back to the year 1999. And, and that year was a year many people remember. Pokemon was, was popular. Oh, man, the then. original? Yeah. Yeah. The first nonstop circumnavigating balloon trip. So someone actually went all the way around the world in a balloon. The Euro was adopted by members of the European Union. And Y2K, who could forget that? Also in 1999, Japan was putting on a fair to promote the Kumano Kodo Pilgrimage Trail and its surrounding areas in the southern part of Wikiyama's Key Peninsula. I sure hope I'm saying all these things right. And one of the cities participating in this fair was a city called Susami. Now, Susami, they weren't really known for anything special, but they really wanted to attract some attention. After much discussion, the town's 70-year-old postmaster came up with a great idea. He proposed an undersea mailbox as a way to generate attention for the city. So they took an old red post box that was around and they altered it so it could accommodate the underwater collection of cards. And they installed it in April 1999 when the fair began. They installed it 10 meters underwater. Now, for those of us not indoctrinated in the metric system, that's approximately 33 feet underwater. And every year since they installed it, the mailbox receives between 1,000 to 1,500 pieces of mail. So you have scuba divers that will go under the ocean and, and drop cards in there. And it was actually recognized by Guinness World Records as the world's deepest underwater post box in 2002. The post box is for use by divers who will go to a local store and buy water-resistant postcards. They write messages on them with an oil-based paint marker, and then they drop them off in the mailbox. And then an employee of that shop goes and collects the cards every few days and then takes them to the local post office. The items then get delivered to recipients within a week or so of being, of being posted in the mail. Now, the record itself was broken in 2015. Uh, Malaysia thought they could do one better, and they actually did, and they installed an underwater post box at a depth of about 40 meters. That's about 131 feet under the ocean surface. So, little fact, I thought it was very interesting. That is really cool. And who would have, how does they, how does that work? How does the mail not get wet? I don't know. Well, in, in, <laughs> at least in, in the one in Japan, you can buy the, the water resistant cards. So I guess they must have a wax film on top of it or something like that. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. 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 And I think when I was researching in Malaysia, they stick it inside some kind of a waterproof bag and then stuff it down. Unbelievable. I mean, I, I, I've never scuba dived. But uh, I think that'd be pretty cool. That would be an experience you could repeat to your kids. Hey, I went scuba diving and put something in the mail. Yeah, 
<laughs> that is really cool. Although nowadays they'll be like face on phone and say, yeah, whatever, Dad. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess that could take junk mail to a whole new, whole new level, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, well, great. Well, thank thank you everyone for listening to this episode, and we'll uh, we'll catch you next time around. Thanks, everyone. Until next time, keep your head in the clouds. <laughs>